All right, turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I just want to briefly read this text, what we used last week in our first part of our message last week on gospel edification. This is part two today. And in Philippians chapter 1, let's start reading in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always, in every prayer of mine, making my request for you all with joy. Why? He says here why. The word for means because. Because your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Last week when we started part one, we introduced the subject of gospel edification. Right here, we talked about how that it is vital for gospel edification to take place. There must first be gospel fellowship. And this verse here, verse 5 of Philippians 1, is the bullseye for the goal of the church and the purpose of the church. It's to fellowship in the gospel of Christ. We did a message not too long ago about knowing who our brothers and sisters in Christ are so that we can support them, love them, defend them, and know who they are not, so that we are not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Well, we determine who a believer is or is not by the gospel. We judge saved and lost by the same gospel we believe, starting with ourselves. If we believe a false gospel, we're lost. If we believe a true gospel, it's evidence that we're born of God. And then once we see that, we judge whether or not other people have the same God that we do, the same Christ that we do, the same gospel that we do by seeing what comes out of their mouth, which proceeds from their heart concerning whether this message is true or not true. So once that's determined, okay, I believe the gospel. You all believe the gospel. Our fellowship is in that gospel. It's not politics. It's not culture. It's not entertainment. You know, you can name all kinds. It's not any of those things. Those things are to really be side issues and ought not be brought up to offend one another because it's not a, it's not a gospel issue. So you might find, you might go right down the road here and you might walk in and think, wow, this music's pretty good. You know, it's, it's not, crazy music. The lyrics are sound. I really like the carpet. The seats are pretty soft. They've got better coffee than we do. But yet, they seem to be focused on this one that they call Jesus. Well, keep listening. (laughs) Keep listening. Keep asking questions. What do you think about Christ? What did he do here? What did he do here? And then, if it would come up where what they're saying about the personal work of Christ opposes the scriptural version of what the truth is, then those other things, the, the nice carpet, the soft pews, the, the cool music, that doesn't matter. These are really, really nice people. They got, they'll invite you to their house. And none of that matters. It does not matter. Get out of there. You know, Paul in uh, Galatians 1, he said, you don't have to turn it. He said, um, it's when the churches of Galatia were flirting with another gospel. These False prophets crept in, false brethren, he called them, crept in slowly by stealth and started giving them little, subtly giving them little things that would pull them away, keep keep their focus off of Christ and on to something else. And uh, Paul wrote him this letter to, you're going to have to get off the fence here. You're going to have to identify this false gospel, get these people out, separate yourself from them, or, you know, you're, you're condemned. And he said, if anybody comes to you preaching another gospel, let him be damned. And he's talking about himself, too. He said, if I or an angel preach another gospel, and I'm here to tell you this gospel that I think most of you know that we preach here and defend and we've been hammered on for some years. If I come here next week and say, you know what, I see now that there are conditions that we must fulfill to attain righteousness. I would hope that (laughs) of the days of old, sometimes some of the people would rent their clothes and yell and, you know, see what I'm saying? Something would have to be done. 
either I would get kicked out or you guys would leave or just you can't agree with the false gospel. The truth is more important than me or you. And if you're one here that is maybe by yourself in the truth and everybody else, yeah, I think I see what you're saying. There are conditions in, in Christ. It, it does look like in some sense that he did die for everybody. And if, and if you're by yourself on that, you need to go. <laughs> go find some place that's not lying about the gospel. So this, this kind of gets rid of the, like the social aspects of, of why people come to church you know, and, and what they're into church about. It's fellowship in the gospel. If there's no fellowship in the gospel, then it is in vain. The whole thing is a waste of time. So that's kind of where we started out last week, emphasizing in the introduction the fact that our focus should be as, as a functioning church, fellowshipping in the gospel. We identified the word, defined the word edify or edification as having to do with architecture or a structure being built. And that is what edification is. It is a building up of, and we're talking about people here, of the church, of individual body members of the church. We are to be edified and edify one another. We also were careful to say that edification must be done in faith, by love, in humility, through the Spirit of God, with the use of the Word of God as the means. I don't know if you got all those. In faith, by love, in humility, through the Spirit of God, with the Word of God as the use, as a means. If you take some of those things out, it's, it's going to be messed up. So those ideas there, and there's probably some more you could put in there. Collectively, out of the, the New Testament especially, you could um, come up with, that sentence there, what I, what I came up with, of the vital things that need to be ingredients in this process of edifying one another. We also looked at um, things that relate to edification. Gospel fellowship, we already mentioned. Gospel forgiveness in the church body as you offend someone or someone offends you, whether on purpose or accident. The principle there is that if you've been offended by someone, they have, say it as a, a sin, they've treated you wrongly, and it's their fault, they've sinned against you, you should know that you have sinned against God, and God has forgiven you. So therefore, that is your motivation or incentive for forgiving them. God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. Therefore, you forgive them for the same reason. You're not any better than them. You have maybe offended in, in worse cases. So it's the idea there, when you talk about gospel forgiveness, you're, you're talking about a lot of things. You're talking about patience. You're talking about, you're talking about knowledge, first of all. Wisdom, patience, compassion, long-suffering, things like this. Maturity and growth in grace will show you some of these things. Another thing we talked about is gospel motive obedience. And we went to Hebrews chapter 10 there, that section there where it talked about forsaking not the assembly of ourselves. And it talked about the things that the church body does to edify one another. It didn't even use the word edify, but the activity going on in those few verses there was edification activity. Talking about, first of all, it gave our doctrinal foundation was in Christ, that we're to stand with our profession and we are to look to Christ who paid for our sin, and that we are to provoke, on that basis, we're to provoke one another as we meet together, provoke one another to love and to good works, and meet together, and even more do those things as time goes on, because time will be ending at a certain point. So that's kind of what we dealt with in things related to edification. We mentioned, too, that the gospel of Christ in this thing of edification must be our foundation. If we don't have a gospel foundation, again, anything to do with what we're doing in this church body is in vain. There's only one foundation laid, and that's the one of Christ. Anything built on a bad foundation, we know, is going to sink, sinking sense in vain. And one other note on that is uh, Christ being our foundation, which just not, we just throw that word out, Christ. 
we assume everybody knows what that means. Everybody that comes in the door, say we have new people next week. And all I say is, believe in Christ? They say, yeah. And then we say, well, everything's cool, right? Doctrine and theology that supports Christ and his gospel of free and sovereign grace must be known, understood, loved, defended for this edification to work out correctly. Because you just can't be talking about things and letting people assign their own unbiblical definitions to them. It's not going to work. Some people, when they hear that, they say, Dang, on, you're elitist, aren't you? You're just so full of pride. I care about the character of God and the person of Christ. We just can't assign false definitions to gospel principles to allow man to have glory and not Christ alone. That's why it's important. It has nothing to do with us. And one of the last things we talked about in part one was not just preachers or teachers are to be the ones edifying, but the whole body of Christ must grow in grace and knowledge of Christ to be effective in and participate in mutual edification to have a healthy church. And so that's where we left off. And, you know, I kind of asked the question of summing all that up from last week is, so if we saw that if a person that's a church member is serious at all, sincere at all, that they will be a part of this function of the church and make use of the means to say, well, how can I be a part of this edification thing? Instead of just uh, zipping in and zipping out and not being a participant, being active. Or there's so many other things involved in the church just besides this hour and a half, two hours here outside of the church. It's communicating with one another, prayer. I think prayer is a very underestimated thing. We don't talk enough about it, but that's part of it. And we'll maybe see some of that today as we go into part two. Turn to Romans 15. I've got about four texts that have the word and idea of edification or edify in it. And I just want to deal with those four or five texts and we'll be done with this for today. Romans 15, start in verse 1. I just want to talk about these texts maybe as we go and bring out some of the things that I see were emphasized in them that have to do with us being involved in this uh, gospel edification. Then we who are strong. Okay, stop right there. First of all, he makes a distinction of certain people who are strong, which we got to see that that doesn't mean everybody is strong. There has to be some that are weaker in some degree. It's not like there's just two degrees. One's extremely strong and one's extremely weak and there's nobody in between. There's people in between. Because if someone is weak or weak in the faith or immature in the faith, they do grow. They don't grow overnight to be super strong. There's there's some stuff in between. So I just want you to note that. And in your mind, and just don't say it, don't embarrass yourself. Don't say, oh, well, that's talking about me. I'm the strong one. You don't have to say <laughs> anything. It'll be apparent. And if you say you're strong all the time, it means you're weak. Just be honest. You know, it's, it's somebody not taking heed where they stand because they think of themselves a little higher than they should. Then we who are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. So right away, love, humility, patience. I mean, you could name all these attributes that we need to be having to do this. Let everyone, verse 2, of us please his neighbor for his good to what? To edification, to building up. Last week we talked about considering the other person, which means don't look to yourself so much. Quit thinking of me, myself, and I. Think of love looks outward to help other people. So that's kind of the idea here. Verse 3, 4, even, here's our example. We've looked at this in Philippians 2, for example. This, that's probably the best place to look. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever things were written 
before were written for our learning, so that we through patience and comfort from the scriptures might have hope. And may God, the God of patience and consolation, grant or give you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. That's exactly what it said in Philippians 2. To be of this mind like Christ. And that's the part where it says that he took upon himself the form of a servant. And there it talks about how that he emptied himself out and he humbled himself. And this is what this is saying. It harmonizes with it that Christ is our example and be like him in the way you deal with other people. Verse 7, therefore, receive one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Notice that. Therefore, receive one another. I mean, you can read past that and just kind of miss that. Receiving one another is, I guess you could say, deal with others as you would want others to deal with you, right? Do you want to be rejected among a crowd that claims they agree on the most important thing in the world? I mean, you don't even want to be rejected at some little stupid committee at work. But this is like the most important thing in the world here. Do you want to feel as if you are received or rejected? <laughs> now, there are examples throughout the New Testament writings, and Paul is correcting some of these churches for treating people like they're rejected. The Corinthians, for example, were not waiting on certain people to come to the Lord's Supper. I believe it was people that didn't have much money and didn't really have money to bring food, and these people were just, it was a banquet, man. They were getting crazy. They were getting drunk. The other people... Uh, whatever, they're not here yet. Uh, who cares? It was me, myself, and I, and feeding themselves. You know, the book of James is talking about, too, uh, had to do with, with the way you treat people, especially with uh, less money and, and, and different things. And there's also different other reasons why people would treat one another different, whether it be uh, a racial issue, a cultural issue, a money issue, or less knowledge. There's all kind of different ways to mistreat people. And what this reminds me of, when I read this and really noticed it for the first time, a husband and a wife, it says that the husbands are supposed to give themselves just like Christ gave himself for the church. This is very similar language to that. Receive one another in the same way as Christ also received us. How did he do that? He gave himself for us. You mean I got that much responsibility toward church members? That looks like that's what it says right here to me. So it's as something as simple as an attitude when you deal with church members. That's enough right there that would make this distinction here. It's about edification. Edification built upon this foundation. You see this last verse we read. You see Christ as a foundation, right? Receive one another how? As Christ received us. There's that gospel foundation. Go to 1 Corinthians. You know, Joel Olstein, for example, he might be teaching on this same subject. I know this morning as I was kind of going over my notes, looking at them again, refreshing, somebody turned the TV on and was trying to find a cartoon for one of the kids, and there he was, that big face and those shining teeth. And he was saying something. I can't even catch what he said. It was just kind of gives you the shivers. But... He could be saying the same thing, using a lot of the same phrases and terms and, and whatever. He might say it pretty good, but he doesn't have the same foundation we have. He has a, a, a crooked, cracked foundation that will sink. I mean, he could probably be a good motivational speaker, but he shouldn't be called a preacher because he's a false prophet, because he believes the false gospel. He might be a genuinely nice guy. And he might be not deceiving people on purpose. He is deceived himself. Evil men shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. That's what the scripture says. 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. Now this, we touched on Romans 14 last week when we were talking about Christian liberty. We were talking about meat 
offered to idols. And we also talked about the other aspect of meat, how that it can be cultural, whether it be Jews or Muslims and different things like that. People may be freshly converted that are not used to being allowed to eat pork and shrimp and lobster and things like this. And, of course, Romans 14 dealt with special days and wine versus no wine. So we kind of brushed over that last week in Romans 14. And here again is another repeat of the idea of meat offered to idols. So I just want to give you the context there. But it does mention this word edify in verse 1. But concerning the sacrifices to idols, we know that we all have knowledge Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. Now, I just want to say before we go any further, I've seen this verse just yanked out of context so many times about knowledge puffing up. And I wrote an article, the title of it was a question, does all knowledge puff up all the time? No, (laughs) no. This specific knowledge is talking about this specific topic, about this meat and how you are to react with people who are weak in this view. That's what this is talking about. Can that idea of certain knowledge puffs up be applied to other places? Sure, sure. And I think Paul does that in another place. Who makes you to differ? Remember that verse? You know, what have you gotten that you didn't receive? Why do you act like, you know, you didn't receive it and you've like got on your own? Why do you act like a free willer? In other words, what Paul's saying. But this is talking about this thing of, of meat and how you're to treat others who are not yet up to par with you on this knowledge about it's okay to eat this meat. Verse 2, and if any man thinks he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. In other words, Paul is saying, as you're reading this, Church of Corinth, anybody know everything? Go ahead and let it be known. No, I didn't think so. So he's saying, you don't know anything like you ought to know it. We see through a glass darkly, dimly. It's Paul, he's said that before. And going back to, if a person is very knowledgeable and they are converted, it's because God has revealed these things by his spirit. You didn't invent the truth. You didn't come to the truth and say, truth, I'm going to improve you because I'm Scott Price. And I'm going to say it different. I'm going to put my spin on it. I'm going to get a following a crowd. And that truth, uh, that truth was so dusty until I came along. And now look at this truth. It's booming. No, you're a Johnny come lately. That truth is eternal. You're nobody. So don't think that you've done something for the truth or to the truth. And if you do something against the truth, you're just a liar. And that's the way that works. So this idea of, What I said earlier, the truth is more important than us. It came before us. The truth would be fine if we didn't even come along. That's how serious this matter is. It's like to be reverenced, the truth of God's word. So we don't know it all. And and we should want to learn more. and, And we should, as we learn, ask God to keep us humble. Verse 3, but if anyone loves God, he has been known of him. A lot of times we see the word know or knew or known, and it refers to affection or to know someone in an intimate relationship way. And I believe that's what this is talking about here. We love him because he first loved us. That's saying the same thing. Exactly. But verse 1 is what we wanted to see there. As we deal with these different issues, and we deal with people, human beings just like us, who maybe don't know as much as us, and maybe we should be reminded of what we didn't know before. And as we deal with these people, we have to deal with them in love and patience and humility. I did mention something last week about, for example, in Romans 14, these these three things mentioned, uh, special days, wine versus no wine, and you know the meat issue, that these texts here are not put in place to enable weak brothers and sisters to stay weak. We just don't think, okay, say we got a Muslim comes in here that was converted last week, and he believes the gospel. I mean, you listen to him, you think, man, he, I, this is great. This guy came from this craziness, 
to overhear and he's saying what we're saying. And then we have a get together and it's like, uh, he's not ready for, he's not ready to relinquish this ban on pork. You got to deal with him in a certain way. You can't just say, all right, well, I guess this guy, you know, after a couple of years, he seems to be pretty faithful. I guess we can never eat pork again. No, you teach this guy so that he can eat pork, right? And you teach him and bring him up so he's not weak because that is a weakness. We can't deny that that's a weakness because the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. So we, we bring those people up so that they can have freedom and so that it doesn't in any way blur the truth of Christ alone. It has nothing to do with me. That stuff's done away with. So we try to be helpful and patient. We don't enable their weakness and keep them weak and make the whole church suffer. Because I like, I like pork. I like shrimp. I like lobster. And I'm not a real big alcohol person, but you know, every great once in a while, I'll, I'll, I'll drink a little. There's no reason to, because of one weak person, for years and years and years and years, everybody walk on eggshells and act like they're plastic and fake. It's not going to happen here. And at the very least, we see tendencies of some people like that. We pray for them. Even if you don't talk to them, you pray for them. And maybe pray that some would, as they deal with this person, that that would go pretty good and this person would come up to where they should be. Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Paul speaking to the church at Ephesus through a letter. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Beseech means to call near, to invite, to invoke, to call for, to desire, to exhort, or to pray. I pray you. You know, this, this is what I want. In other words, this is what I want to take place. Some places this word is even beg. So there's the idea there. He says, I invoke you or call you near or, or desire you to or exhort you or, or I pray that you walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. How do you do that? In what manner do you do that at least? Verse 2, with all lowliness and meekness and long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. That's a bunch of stuff right there. And if you do those things right there, you cannot go wrong. This is the high road as you deal with the church, church members. You cannot go wrong with lowliness, meekness, long-suffering, and forbearing one another in love. All those things are spoken very, very highly, very often in the Scripture. What else? Verse 3, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What he's saying there is, is don't come near, even given a glimpse of being divisive. God hates division among his body. He goes on in verse 4, there is one body, one spirit, and even as you are called in one hope of your calling. How is that? That's through the gospel. It's through the one gospel. He called you by our gospel, Paul said in another book. That's how you're called, is by and through the means of the gospel. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. So, Paul, why would you say one Lord? Well, there's false Christs. He said that in other places. There's another Jesus that's not another, right? One faith, that just means the gospel. That's talking about the gospel. That body of doctrine, that record, that testimony, that confession, that word of truth, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of our salvation. Who has believed our report, Isaiah said. There's only one. Why do he say that? As he said in other places, there's another gospel which is not another, and those that preach it are damned. Verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. Why do you have to make that distinction? One God. This is life eternal, that you may 
know me, the only true God. God made that distinction. And Lord Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. What's he say in other places in Isaiah? I'm God, there's none else. I'm God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, so on and so forth. God makes those distinctions. Those are words that are inspired by the Holy Spirit to make a distinction between a truth and the lie. And Paul said in Philippians 3 that to remind you of things, to me it's not grievous. For you it's safe. Right? So we need to be reminded. Verse 7. But to every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Therefore, he says, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men. You know what this is saying? Everybody in the church body has a gift and, and he gave it to them. I might not know what yours is. You might not even know what your own is. You might think you've got one like somebody I was talking about earlier and it keeps talking about it. No, that's not it. Be quiet about that. But I see something else that you got. Really? What? You tell them. I never noticed that before. Well, be quick to hear and slow to speak in some of this stuff. It has to do with humility and patience and maturity. But he does give gifts to men. And it says in the previous verse that there's measures of these gifts. They're not all the same. They're not all the same. And God is in control of that, determining that. Verse 9, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended in the same who also ascended far into the heavens, that he might fill all things. And truly, he gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors, some to be teachers. For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, to do what? For the edifying of the body of Christ. The word perfecting here, for the perfecting of the saints, it means complete furnishing. It doesn't mean like utter perfection, like God's perfect. It means that God has done his work in the church to make it work. And God did it. It's nothing you did to furnish yourself or whatever. God is doing this work. And it's a it's a continuing work. What do we read in uh, Philippians 1? That he's going to continue to work in us until the day of Christ. Paul's confident of that. This word perfecting that means complete furnishing, it comes from an original word that means to complete thoroughly repair, adjust, fit, frame, mend, perfectly joined together, prepare, or restore. So you see, this is, this is an activity of God working in us and the church body to grow it up or to build it up. And our responsibility in the edification process is there that we're exhorted to move forward with this, him supplying us everything we need for this to be done. So let me reread that verse 12 there. It says, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, everybody's in the ministry, and some of the things listed above were parts of the ministry, and that's not all of the parts. We're going to see some more here in a minute. I think we had seen some last week, too, of different parts of the ministry. No matter what they are, there's several different things. I just mentioned prayer as an example. You don't have to be, you don't have to be an office bearer and have your name listed on a website as this is the official prayerer. You know, everybody is exhorted to pray one for another. Verse 13, and this until we all come together in the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a full-grown man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that, so that we no longer may be infants. That's something I was talking about for an example of the weaker brother or sister. An infant. If you see this, what we are involved in here in church, 
as the most important thing in your life. I tell you, the scripture says that. I could sum it up, and I'm just telling you that is the, this is the most important thing of your life. You involved with your Savior and involved with the same people that have the same Savior. If it's the most important part of your life and you're into this, you don't want to be an infant in connection with this. You want to grow and mature, right? Not for pride's sake or for, you know, yeah, I'm embarrassed I'm an infant. It's not that. It's not that. Do, do you understand that, that when you learn of Christ more and more and doctrine and scripture and theology and all these different teachings and how they connect one another, the more you learn, the clearer and, and what you know about how you're worshiping God is, is it intensifies in your in your mind. Your mind is renewed that you you see more and more and more glory of God and you see less and less and less of you. You become, in other words, become, I want to say humanly speaking, I want to use this phrase, you become more efficient in your worship of God and in the body of the church. I like being efficient in everything I do. It may not, you may not be able to tell by looking at some of the things I do. But when I see something's inefficient, I can't stand it. And then I start beating myself up about it. I don't care if it's just the way I think. I don't care if it's a process of the way I do things at home, organize things or at work. It's that thing will bug me and haunt me until I get it straight. Needless to say, I'm bugged and haunted all my life, 24-7, about certain things. But this is, uh, I've said this before, this is, um, you can look to Christ and glory in the cross and be selfish about it in a good way. Because you know, this is what I need. This is what I'm told to go for. Or you can be like a Pharisee and be selfish. And you're, you're not even in the club. I mean, you're just, you're just, you're, you're blind. So, in other words, this thing that's the most important thing of our life, it should be something that is automatic, that we're drawn to, and we are like the deer panting, that we lap up the water by the brook. And it's just, we love it. Nobody's got to twist my arm to get my head into this thing. You know, somebody in times past said, you know, it, it's different. I mean, you're, you're a pastor. You're into it. Seriously? <laughs> now, I can't get out of that view because I've, I've messed with ministry and, and done teaching for a long time. I can't even think outside of not doing this. But at least when I said that, I saw some reactions like you shook your head like, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> you're right. It doesn't. It's weird. It's a self-confession that, you know what, I'm not into this. Well, what comes from the heart comes out the mouth. If a person says, you're into it, I'm not. And your excuse is, you're not a, you're not a pastor. I don't get it. Verse, I started there talking about infants, verse 14. So that we no longer may be infants tossed to and fro. And carried about with every wind of doctrine, like a leaf, in other words. You've seen out, look out a window and seen a leaf go, there it goes, there it goes. We don't want to be like that. We want to be stable. We don't want to be double-minded. We don't want to be, you know, be shaky in our stand. We want to be firm, like a tree planted by the water. In it goes on, uh, carried about with every wind of doctrine, in the dishonesty of men, in cunning craftiness to wiles of deceit. Anybody ever seen any of that? I've seen a lot of that. Verse 15. But that you, he's bringing it personal here. You, speaking the truth in love. It's the only way you ought to speak it. May in all things grow up. Don't be an infant. Let's grow up. To him, Christ, who is the head, even Christ. From, notice this, this whole last uh, verse here that I'm going to read is just packed with things that I want us to see. From whom, speaking of Christ, from Christ, the whole body, that's everybody in the church, fitted together and compacted by that which every joint supplies, according to... Man's free will, huh? man's flesh, 
now. The effectual working in the measure of each part. So God's doing this work effectually. And you can either just be lackadaisical and still be a part of it and like miss half of it. Or you could, as the scripture says, be sober and soak up the word so you know what is exactly going on and you're, you're on board. Producing the growth of the body. And what does that do? To the edifying of itself in love. Now, there wasn't really anything necessarily here saying that shut up, sit down, and just listen to what the pastor says. Don't ever talk. Don't even try to exercise any kind of gift you think you have. You know, I've heard pastors where they just just come and shut up, and I'll tell you what gift I think you should exercise that I think you might have. And uh, I might not even do that. Just shut up. I mean, I've, had, I've heard preachers with that attitude. And it is like that dude with that white fish-looking cone thing on his head. The Pope is just like that. But these people that I'm talking about should know better. I heard, uh, finish with this story, I heard a uh, church not too long ago that had a split over doctrine. And it should have split because some of the doctrine was uh, weakening and watering down the sovereignty of God. Some of the members came out from that church and couldn't, couldn't meet with them anymore. And uh, would not put up with it. And some of the other so-called sister churches of this church, the pastors, a couple of them said, you know what you need to do is just go back over there and just be quiet. Sit under that guy and listen to him in his ministry. And I thought, all right, I'm, I'm glad I know who these pastors are now. I already had some problems with them. But now I know it's a cover-up. Here this guy has doctrine that is totally false. Is anybody looking around? We're going to sweep this under the carpet. Go over there and pretend like you agree with them. They didn't follow those preachers' advice. They did not follow the advice. And that's good. Because, you know what? They're not tossed to and fro. They're not infants anymore. They've studied the scripture and they see the scripture is more important than sitting under this guy that's in this preacher's club. I ain't going to do it. All right, I'll stop there. I had two other texts. I think Jason Booth is preaching next week, and we'll see how it goes the week after that. If I think I could do something here with the rest of this, these notes, I may. Anybody got any questions or comments? Yeah. Go ahead and read it. I just I shut my e-sword off. Well, we know this. We know that. Um, you remember when the time frame me and you were converted, kind of the, close to the same time, Rob? We had the landmarkism thing, and we had some weird eschatology views, and we had some weird teaching on tithing and different things like that. And I remember those things that I just mentioned were some of the first things to drop off with the help of some other people. And then. There are later, there are finer details of things that we learn about and grow in that maybe are not gospel issues. But when it comes to the gospel, for example, here's an example. When I talk about a gospel being a false gospel that will not work, that's not the power of God in the salvation. Two different gospels. And then people say, well, this, this guy, and they'll describe rank Arminianism. And then people say, I believe he's saved. He's just, you know, he's just a baby Christian. And I say, all right, you believe the same gospel he does? Because there's only one. And the gospel is the power of God and salvation. So you believe that same gospel? You believe that same Christ that he identifies with? The Christ that has died for everybody in the world and that most of them went to hell? And uh, you have to fulfill certain conditions to make his death work. You believe in that Christ? Oh, no, I didn't say that. Well, make a distinction that there is several Gospels and there's only one true one. And don't tell me, don't sit there as a, as a Calvinist or Reformed person or a Sovereign Grace person and say, Arminianism is a false gospel, but Arminians are saved. Quit saying that. See what I mean? Arminian people 
believe Armenianism. They believe the doctrine. And if they didn't, they wouldn't be called that. And again, Armenianism is just a catchphrase for conditionalism. Works plus grace. That's all that is. So make up your mind what you're going to call it. The point is there's only one gospel. Now, if you go to the churches of Galatia, Paul starts out in verse 6. I'm, I'm kind of surprised that you've, you're so quickly removed from the gospel that you started out in. And now you're falling for this other gospel. So he wrote this letter to say, look, I'm going to describe to you the issue here. I'm going to break it down for you in these different reasonable arguments, logical arguments. I'm going to show what the scripture has always shown all the way through that the just shall live by faith. And it's not of the law. It's not conditional. I'm writing this letter so that you can get off the fence. You started out in the truth. That's Paul's first point. You started out in the truth. You didn't start out with, I believe, that we're saved plus circumcision, plus keeping of days, plus eating certain foods. You didn't start out in that. You started out in the truth. These people came in and started wooing you away from that. And that's when Paul's coming with that letter. Say, hold on a minute. Where are you going here? So the point is, God's people, they might have a bunch of baggage, but when they get to truth, they start out with the truth and they're exhorted to stay in that truth of the gospel, of the essence of the gospel. Now you might have goofy views, side views about eschatology or the way the church should be run or women shouldn't wear makeup or just pile it on. You know, you might have weird views about a lot of that stuff, but the gospel is why you're even being dealt with by the church for help. So we know that people that are born of God and believe the gospel can do some crazy stuff. We read it in the New Testament. I mean, David, even in the Old Testament, he was justified. He was in the state of the non-imputation of sin, and he did that with Bathsheba, had the husband killed, and he was just as saved as, as anybody in on their quote-unquote best day. So as we deal with people and we identify them as believers, when it comes to the gospel, when we see some, as I said, if I came in here and said, no, you know what, I, I had this all wrong. I believe it's conditional. Christ died for everybody. I don't care what it looks like. He, you know, you may think he failed and, and maybe he did, but I, I think it's conditional. If I said all that and I persevered in that to the end, it means I never believed the truth. Never. I was never saved. So this thing about, I bring that up because Galatians, people try to get that Galatians example and say, look at Galatians, they believe in the false gospel. Temporarily, they were being pulled away. And Paul, that's why he wrote the letter. I see you're being pulled away. Make up your mind so I can decide whether or not you're my brother and sister. He said it three times in that letter. One time he says, I'm afraid of you. <laughs> in other words, he said, I don't, I don't know that you're converted. He said things like that in the letter. So that's what the letter was about. So sometimes you'll get people like trying to throw that monkey wrench in and take it out of context and see, see, the Galatians believe the false gospel. It's okay to believe a false gospel and get away with it. It's not what that means at all. So what you said where I was also was this, this is a teachable moment to the saints. to the seven churches, all those things in there. It's kind of like showing the different things. And it's, I mean, we've got the benefit because we see all these errors. We're supposed to learn from those, you know. 
And um, I see what you just read there. I see at least three things. Personal, how that we, we grow up personally into what it say about a man, new man. Right. So, and then if you think also of the break between the old covenant and the new covenant, those two peoples that came together, remember Christ broke down the wall of mental petition. It says, and it uses that phrase, new man. It's talking about all these different people with, with different historic beliefs have been brought together to be one collective new man, which is the church. When I say universal, get the landmarkers mad at me. And then um, historically, you could say that through even after the canon was written, new things come up in the church body of Christ universally that were not even specifically brought up in the scripture. New errors pop up. People raise up and they write rebuttals against them, confessions or whatever throughout church history. And there is a there's a growth in that sense, too, until the final day. And you see you see this kind of thing throughout church history. You, know, you see dark times. And, but you see, usually when, a, when an error comes up, somebody is appointed to stand up against that error and say, this is not right. Here's why. You know? There must needs be heresies among us so that those that are approved of God may be made manifest. Again, distinctions, totally all the time, distinctions between truth and lie, truth and lie, truth and lie. And we talked about progressive revelation one time, which is not personal. We have progressive learning, but progressive revelation throughout the early writings of the prophets, how that it got, you crossed the threshold of the covenant break, and then the New Testament writings were clearer. Progressive revelation, clearer who Christ is. Here he is, you know. And then those other things fell off of the ceremonial law that we didn't need to do anymore. The diet stuff, all that stuff is gone. You know, people want to raise it up all the time. The beggarly elements that gender bondage under the administration of death. Go on there. You got some more, though. No? That's where I'm going. Okay. Yeah, and there's some other, one of those other texts, um, I copy and paste what I'm reading onto my notes, and I shaved off three or four or five other verses that deal with, it talks about how we deal with the church, and then the next section was how we deal with people outside the church. Sometimes it'll make those distinctions. You know what I mean? I think that was the Romans one I was looking at. All right, we can be dismissed. Is there anything else that um, anybody that we forgot to talk about or?